0: We've been in the book of Philippians, which is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul, to a particular church at Philippi. Paul is, at the writing of this letter, awaiting trial in Rome for the preaching of the gospel. He is uncertain about his future, and the Philippians had sent him a gift to support him in prison. Back in those days, if you were in prison, you had to provide for your own necessities, And so the Philippians are standing by him in their partnership in the gospel. And Paul writes a letter and in that letter he updates them on what's happening, thanks them for the gift but of course he's very much concerned for their well-being. As we see uh, as a clear pattern in Paul's life, he is concerned for other people. He's concerned for other Christians and so he's praying for them and he writes this letter to them to encourage them to continue to follow Jesus even in the midst of persecution and Also, to be joyful in their Christian life. Joy is a great theme of this letter. And the way this theme connects to our passage is Paul wants them to joyfully receive Epaphroditus and to rejoice that such men exist, that such examples exist, and honor people like Epaphroditus and Timothy. So that's our passage, and this is how it fits in the larger letter. Now, for some people, when they read this, some commentators even, they think this section is out of place, because usually, in Paul's letters, you would see commendations and kind of logistics explained at the end of the letter. That's typical for Paul. But here, we have some personal details and commendations of Timothy and Epaphroditus right in the middle of the letter. This is unusual. So the question is, why? Is it later editing and people just kind of cut and paste it in the wrong way? I don't think so. I think this actually makes a lot of sense, because if you see it in context of chapter 2, Paul has already been talking about the model for humility and and service that we see in Christ. He's already um, gently rebuked the Philippians, that there's apparently some division and conflict in the Philippian church. So Paul says, I have the same mind as Jesus does. And so serve others in humility, see other people's interests as as higher, as as more important than your own. And now I think what he's doing is he's giving them two examples of people who actually live like that. So to me, this, this progression is very logical and makes a lot of sense that Paul would be using these specific examples, talking about specific people to illustrate what it actually means to live as humble servants as Jesus did for us. Paul wrote, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so Timothy and Epaphroditus are the kind of people that actually look to other people's interests above their own. So now we're looking at these two examples, and that's what I'm going to focus on this morning. I want to work through our text under four headings. Number one, I'd like to look at our need for examples, our need of examples. Number two, I'd like to consider specifically the good examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus. Number three, we'll see and consider the supreme example of Christ because that is the context and that is actually what makes Timothy and Epaphroditus good examples to us. They are following Christ and so now we can follow them. And then finally, number four, and very briefly, I will encourage you to pursue becoming an example for others. So our need of examples, number one. Number two, good examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus. Number three, the supreme example of Christ. And number four, our pursuit of becoming an example for others. As I've been reflecting on this passage, it it struck me that we live in a time and in a culture that... Struggles to find good role models. Now, there's a lot of talk about role models. In fact, in schools, starting as early as as preschool, you hear a lot of talk about being a good role model and, and using, looking at other people as role models. However, as I look around in politics and in the arts and in sports, I am wondering who would I encourage my child to imitate? And follow. And there are notable exceptions, but not many. It seems that many of us are struggling to find somebody to connect to, somebody to follow, somebody to use as an example for ourselves or our children. But what about the church? The church is supposed to be better. Of course, we are different from the world, and we should have lots of examples of people to follow. And yet, as I look around the landscape of evangelicalism today, what I see are actually high-profile failures of leaders. And for many of us, just speaking as a Christian, for many of us, we have become suspicious of leaders, of visible leaders. Uh, We have become reluctant to follow somebody and say, this is the person that I can model my life after because we've been burned. And yet, we read this passage and Paul says, honor such men, receive him with joy and honor such men as Epaphroditus. Paul does not seem to be reluctant to put somebody in the role of an example and say, look at Epaphroditus, look at Timothy. Even more audaciously, Paul says later in the letter, this is in Philippians 3.17, he says, brothers, join in imitating me. He's, he's not even afraid to put himself in that category and say, I will be your example, follow me. Is it arrogant for Paul to do that, to call others to follow his example? I don't think it's arrogant as long as the example is of selfless, sacrificial service. If that's what you're commending to people, then I don't think it's arrogant. You're saying, I am serving you and I want you to serve others. Now, it does take some courage to do that, I think. And I have, as many of you, we've struggled with that. For example, I struggle with telling you about my spiritual life. That's hard for me. It's hard for me to tell you that, for example, that I've prayed for certain things and God answered them, or that I have fasted, or that I pursue a certain rhythm of devotions in my own life. It's, It's weird for me. It's awkward to say that. Some of it is just private, you know. That's something that God is doing in my life, so it's hard to just open it up to everybody to see. But some of it feels like I'm telling you what to do, and who am I to tell you what to do? I'm just a step away from failure myself. So is it okay for me to put myself on the pedestal? That's hard. I think a lot of us are wrestling with that. And yet, what we see in Scripture is a clear pattern of spiritual growth happening in community and happening, happening in relationships between less mature Christians and more mature Christians. All over Scripture, the way people grow involves looking at someone else who's just a little bit further down the road and using their example and following in their footsteps. And if we're not doing that, according to the Bible, the mindset that the Bible gives us about spiritual growth, it's very difficult to grow. We need models. We need examples. We need other people who are just maybe just a little bit more mature than us, but more mature than us, to look to in order for us to be changed. Such ideas as discipleship, for example, or mentoring, following, apprenticeship, training, leadership, those are all biblical ideas, and they are essential to the Christian understanding of growth. Ancient Christian monks have established clear patterns of growth based on submission to the more mature people in the monastery. In fact, many of them require obedience and compliance, unquestionable obedience. The assumption is that somebody who is more mature put in the position of being an example for you will be able to help you. And things that you don't understand right now and maybe have a hard time obeying They do, and they can walk you through that process. Now, if you can trust them, there's a caveat to that, of course. Some Christian traditions require regular reading of the lives of the saints, meaning that Christians are learning about the generations of other Christians that came before them, and they're learning stories about people's lives, some notable Christians, some faithful Christians, Christians who have made great sacrifices. And that becomes part of our mentality. As we grow, we have this cloud of witnesses that we can look to. We know about their lives. We know about their decisions and the choices they've made. Fox's Book of Martyrs is a 16th century book that documents Protestant martyrs in England. And that's one of the most influential Protestant books in the English language. This book has shaped generations of Christians and their attitude towards persecution. John Piper, a Baptist preacher, contemporary Baptist preacher, has been a great proponent of reading Christian biographies. He says, biographies have served as much as any other human force in my life to resist the inertia of mediocrity. It's easy to just settle into what you know, and if we don't have examples of people who are further along, who maybe have accepted a greater challenge, it's kind of easy for us to say, yeah, I am functioning in capacity, this is all there is, and my life is the way it should be. But when you get examples of, and and I'm okay using that word, Christian heroes, people who have done amazing things for God, in God's power, that motivates us. Of course it does. We also read stories of flawed Christians that were used by God, and that encourages us, it comforts us, it tells us, oh, I too can be used of God. So, biographies of people from the past, lives of people in the present, whether it's people that we know that are close to us in our church, in our family, in our neighborhood, or people that we watch from afar, but we need examples of people we can imitate in our walk with Christ. So Paul's command to honor such men, honor such people, such examples, rings particularly true in this time, in this culture, and in our church environment. Whom are you honoring? Whom are you imitating? Do you have people in your life that you're saying, these are my examples. I'm watching them. I'm reading about them. I'm talking to them. I am modeling my spirituality, my life, my Christian life of service, my Christian life of obedience, of faithfulness, based on those people's lives. And for many of us, we have mentors. You know, we have people that have invested in us and so we've naturally looked to them. And that is a huge gift. Some of us, we grew up in Christian homes, so we have Christian parents. And some of us read about people from long ago, and those books speak to us. However you do in this, you need heroes, and you need examples, you need mentors. We all do, especially now. Especially now when we see so many public failures, when we see... Sons being raised without fathers and naturally lost in this world. When we see all those issues, we need examples. Now, that's our need. Now, let's look at the two men that Paul writes about as those examples. There are many more, but these are the two that he wants to to put before the Philippians. First one is Timothy. Timothy. Now, as you've read the Bible, those who are familiar with the New Testament, there are lots of passages that are connected to Timothy. We have two letters that Paul wrote to Timothy. Uh, There's lots in the book of Acts about Timothy. He was Paul's longtime associate and protege. Paul calls him his son in verse 22 here, but also in, in other places. This was his spiritual son, somebody that he mentored, somebody that he cared for deeply but also his associate, his co-worker in the gospel. Timothy did a lot of stuff with Paul. He was his, his student, his apprentice in the ministry, and Paul was giving him more and more responsibilities, eventually to the point where Timothy was leading a church in Ephesus. They had a very close relationship. And in fact, for us today, we often would use that relationship to describe how mentoring and discipleship should work I've I've preached I think I've preached a, a series of sermons on on Timothy and Paul and their relationship when I first came to Chatham we look and sometimes people would say and you probably heard that said people would say everybody needs a Paul and everybody needs a Timothy in other words we all need somebody to mentor us we need somebody like Paul to invest in us to be our example But we also need to be an example for someone else, like Timothy. We need to invest in someone else who's younger in the faith that we can influence. And so we see that dynamic between Timothy and Paul even playing out here. Paul says of Timothy in verse 20, For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Literally, he says, I have no one of like soul, kindred spirit. He says, there's a lot of people around me here in Rome a lot of Christians in Rome. But Timothy is the only one that feels as deeply as I feel about the welfare of the Philippian church. And he says, he says, I'm going to send him as soon as I can, as soon as I can spare him, I will send him to you because he really understands you like I do. He really feels deeply about you like I do. So there's this deep connection and, and a kindred spirit between Paul and, And Timothy, Now, of course, the Philippians know Timothy. Timothy was there when the church was planted. He's probably visited the church after that several times. And so Paul is sending somebody that they know, and he says, you know his proven worth. He says, you're not dealing with somebody you don't know. He has invested his life in you already. He was there when the church began. He knows what the persecution is like at Philippi. And you can trust him. He has a character that you can trust. And so Paul says, I'm going to send him to you as soon as I can. Lots of other Christians prioritize their own interests, but Timothy, Timothy lives for the interests of Christ Jesus. Now, we know a lot about Timothy, but not so much about Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus is only mentioned in this letter in the Philippians, and he was just a regular Christian from Philippi. That's really what he was. He was not a a professional minister. He was not really part of Paul's team in any kind of long-term way. He did not travel with Paul. He didn't preach the gospel in new cities. He was a regular guy. He was just a, a Christian in the Philippian church. And so when the Philippians wanted to send a financial gift to Paul, knowing that he was in prison, that he needed his help, their help, so They said, well, who's going to go? Who's going to take this money over many days of travel to Rome? And Epaphroditus said, I will do that. In some ways, this is very ordinary. In some ways, he's just a guy who's willing to serve. He wants to serve Paul. He wants to serve his church. And he says, I know this is a dangerous thing, but I will do it. I will serve In this way, and so now Paul is sending Epaphroditus with the letter, with this very letter to the Philippians, to back home to the church. And now he's serving Paul, so he served his church by bringing the gift to the Philippians, and now he's serving Paul by bringing the letter back to the Philippians. When I think about that, you know, there's lots of lots of great stories in Scripture of, you know, miracles and great sacrifices. But then you, you have a story like Epaphroditus, and it's sort of ordinary. The guy just brought some money to somebody and really couldn't even do that really well, got sick along the way and barely made it, and you know. But Paul says, honor such men. Honor such men. Why? Because he's a selfless servant. He's just he says, I'll serve, I'll go. And he does it. Risking his life, Paul says. I'm reading a little bit between the lines, but I think what happened is he got sick, and he was really sick to the point where Paul said God had mercy on him and healed him, because otherwise he would have died. He was near death's door. And yet, somehow, this person persevered. Epaphroditus persevered and still got that gift to Paul. Somehow, through sickness, through danger, he got it. Just a faithful ordinary, faithful servant. And so Paul elevates him. I love passages like that because I am an Epaphroditus. And so when I read passages like that and Paul says, honor such men, pay attention to their faithfulness, it makes me feel like I'm important in God's God's work. Maybe God can use me too. Because there's nothing unusual or, or spectacular about him. And yet, God is using him. And Paul says, between the lines, I think he's saying, okay, you may be disappointed that I'm promising to send Timothy, but really all you're getting is Epaphroditus with this letter, and you already know him is from your town anyway. So there's no, no spectacular visitor coming from Paul. Nobody with great apostolic authority, nobody with a great reputation. Is just Epaphroditus. But he says, look how he describes him. He says, he's my, my brother, my fellow worker, fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. This Language is remarkable. I think Paul goes over the top to elevate and to honor Epaphroditus. He describes him as his partner in ministry, his brother in arms, in fact, wounded brother in arms. He calls him a messenger, which is the same exact word as an apostle. He calls him an apostle. And then when he says that he's a minister to my need. This is priestly language, as if he's bringing a sacrifice as a priest does. This is Epaphroditus. And Paul says, honor such ordinary faithfulness among you. Now let me draw just two more features that apply to both of them uh, to to show us why Paul would put these men in that position and use them as examples for us. Uh, Number one, they are sent Servants. They're both sent. Paul sends them, of course, he's he's ready to send Timothy, which is not unusual for Timothy to be sent by Paul to speak on his behalf. And of course, Paphroditus is being sent with this letter by Paul, but more than that, they are sent by Christ. Both of these men feel a call on their lives from Christ Himself. So Paphroditus, though he's serving the Philippian church and he's serving of course Paul but he served in Christ in it he's a sent one he's an apostle in a sense of being somebody who's sent by God to do these things that he does Timothy is a sent servant I'll tell you a story about CT Studd CT Studd was a turn of the century 19th to 20th century missionary he was part of the Cambridge 7 if you know some of the history of missions uh, Hudson Taylor challenged people to come to China and there were seven people from Cambridge that actually went to serve with Hudson Taylor in China CT Studd was one of them he was a famous uh, cricket player forgot that left that realized as he writes realized that these are temporal things what am i doing i need to invest in eternal realities and so he becomes a missionary goes to China, experiences many issues there, eventually has to leave, goes to India for a time, and then towards the end of his life, when it really seemed like he should have retired from missions, he spends many, many years serving different parts of Africa and mobilizes Western Christians to to evangelize uh, certain parts of Africa. So at the end of his life, he died in 1931, at the end of his life, he writes this in a letter... Kind of, re, kind of evaluating his life, evaluating his ministry, and this is what he says. As I believe I am now nearing my departure from this world, I have but a few things to rejoice in. They are these. Number one, that God called me to China, and I went in spite of utmost opposition from all my loved ones. Number two, that I joyfully acted as Christ told that rich young man to act he refers to giving his his possessions away. Number 3, that I deliberately at the call of God, when alone on the Bibby liner in 1910, gave up my life for this work, which was to be henceforth not for the Sudan only, but for the whole unevangelized world. And then he concludes, "My only joys therefore are that when when God has given me a work to do, I have not refused it." My only joys, therefore, are are, are that when God has given me a work to do, I have not refused it. These are words of a person who sees himself as a sent person, as a commissioned person, as a person under someone else's authority. And so sure, his possessions are not his, so he gives them away. Sure, his career as a cricket player is not his, so he he gives it up. Sure, that even his family relationships are not more important than the call in his life of Christ. And so he's willing to move to China from Britain and to serve Christ there. I love the way he puts it, that he looks at his life, he says, God has called me to do certain things, and I rejoice that I did not refuse him. Because I could have refused him, you see, because many refuse him. But in his life, he says, I'm just so happy that I responded to Christ's call and that I am doing what he calls me to do. Yes, through many hardships, of course. And I'm sure there were some many very difficult times when he questioned that call. And yet, he didn't refuse it. He was a sent person. Are you a sent person? Are you a person that has been commissioned by Christ? Now, that doesn't have to be missionary service. It certainly can be. And maybe some of us need to consider that. But it could be any task anything that when Christ comes to you and and He says, I want you to do this, I'm going to send you in this way, I'm going to give you this task, I'm going to give you this mission. Do you refuse Him? Have you heard His call? I think so many of us live as servants of self that we don't even hear the call of Christ. And when you hear it, do you accept it? Do you receive it even when that means a financial change, a relational change, a geographical change. Now if we live in the mindset of a sent person, whatever Christ says, we can't refuse him. We are his servants. Our identity is tied to him. So that's the first trade that we, we see that, that Epaphroditus and Timothy both share, is being sent. The second one is they are selfless servants, not just sent service servants, but they are selfless. They care about others. Their lives are marked by sacrifice for others. Timothy cares just as much as Paul does for the welfare of the Philippian church. He endures hardship and persecution and illness and suffering along with Paul to serve others. Paphroditus, as we read, nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life. Verse 30, That word, risking his life, is an interesting word. It's a gambling term, actually. He gambles his life, which means there's a real chance I'm going to lose it. So I'm risking my life, not knowing whether God is going to take it or not, but I'm, I'm putting it on the table. I'm all in. I'm putting all my chips in for Christ. And so that's Epaphroditus. Came to serve Paul on behalf of the Philippian church, and then Paul sends him to serve the Philippian church on behalf of Paul. These two men are selfless servants of Christ and of others. They prioritized the needs of others over their own needs. Do these examples convict you? They bother you when you read stories like that and they're like, that's not me? Are you reading reading it in, in your own life and saying, That's not me? I don't prioritize other people's interests above my own? Do they encourage you to keep going when you're saying Yes, I I care for others and I serve others, but it's hard, and I need encouragement and I need strength. So you look at people like Epaphroditus and Timothy and saying, "Okay, I'm like them. God, please help me. Help me stay faithful. Help me not veer off this course." Do you live as a selfless servant, or is your life like the lives of many in Rome? Apparently, consumed with your own goals, with your own plans, with your own interests with your own preferences. And just because it's acceptable in America doesn't mean it's acceptable in the church. We are not to build our lives around our own self. That is not the Christian way. And yes, I recognize that certain churches and certain preachers have adjusted the gospel to include that. So when you come to church, you could just hear a good message of how you can feel better about yourself. And really what you're doing is okay. Okay. Give yourself some grace, we say. That is not the world of the New Testament. When you read the Bible, have the same mind as Christ Jesus did, who humbled himself, sacrificed himself. This is, this is what we are supposed to do, this is how we're supposed to live. So let's, let's talk about Jesus. What is the supreme example behind these two examples that we see in Epaphroditus and Timothy? Now, of course, this is the context. Look at Philippians 2, verse 3. Paul is still continuing the theme of humility, of service, of sacrifice. He's encouraging the Philippians. He's saying, I know there's some conflicts. I know there's some divisions. It seems like some people at Philippi is just being selfish. So he tells them the following, Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Notice how he doesn't say, If you really serve somebody really well, there is a time when you can just kind of back off and say, okay, well, this is now for me. No, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit. But in humility, in humility, this is a foreign word to our culture, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That means when I have a choice to serve me, to serve someone else, if I consider them to be more significant than I am, I will do what is more important, what is more significant. I will serve them. I am not as important, so I can't prioritize myself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God. See how Paul, he commands them, he exhorts them, but then he tells them this is how it happens. You need to see Jesus. You need to see what he's done, and then that will influence you. This will give you a pattern, a model, power to do what you're supposed to be doing. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Though he, Jesus is God, he deserves glory, he deserves worship, he deserves full obedience. But Jesus is not holding on to that. He gives that up, not his divinity, but the privileges, the rights for a time. He gives that up so he can come and serve us. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, actually a form of a slave to be literal. Being born in the likeness of men. God becoming human and giving up the rights of God and becoming not just a human being but a slave, the lowest of the human beings. He gets to the lowest uh, rung on the ladder and then he gets even lower. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. God, human, human servant, obedient, point of death, death on the cross. He couldn't go any lower than he did. This is is God doing that. And Paul says, this is what you're supposed to be like. This is the selfless kind of servanthood. This is the kind of humility that we as Christians must exercise. He is our supreme example to follow. This is why in another passage when Paul says, be imitators of me, and Paul, by the way, says it several times in Scripture, follow me, imitate me, do what I do. But in this particular case, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That's assumed in all the other times that he says, follow me. But here it's explicit. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul says, only follow me as I am following Christ. Be selfless. Be humble. Be a person on, on mission with God. But do that because I am doing that following Jesus and following his example. So follow my example as I'm following the example of Jesus. So we look at Timothy and Epaphroditus as great examples to follow only because they themselves are following the example of Jesus. He's the ultimate sent and selfless servant. In fact, it's interesting that the way Paul describes Timothy and Epaphroditus, he's using the language, he's using language that is used of Jesus. It's almost like he's describing them, but he's describing Jesus that is, that is moving them to be who they are. When, when he says that Epaphroditus was distressed, that the Philippians were worried about him because they found out that he was ill. That word distressed is the same word that we read when Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane and he is troubled. He is distressed in his soul. That's the level of distress. Now, it's interesting that Paul would pick that word. I think he does that to connect Epaphroditus to Jesus, to connect Timothy to Jesus and show us that they are doing what Jesus has done. They're following in Jesus' footsteps, which is why they're good examples to us. Jesus, too, was sent help us. Jesus was a sent person. In humility, the eternal Son of God accepted the Father's mission to be born as a human being, to live a life in a sinful and broken world, to experience pain and suffering and rejection on behalf of His people. Jesus was sent. God sent Him here Jesus willingly obeyed, joyfully obeyed, but he was sent. Which is why, especially in the Gospel of John, as you read it, Jesus is always very careful to say, I am following the Father's will. I am telling you the words that I heard from the Father. I am only doing and saying what the Father said and did. Why? He's a sent person. He's on a mission. And so we are on a mission as well. But Jesus is a supreme example of somebody who was sent. The old hymn says, he left His Father's throne above, so free, so infinite, His grace emptied Himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Jesus ended His life bleeding for us. He ended His life in a scandalous, shameful, extremely painful way. The Romans couldn't come up with a more gruesome, more torturous way to die, So they saved the crucifixion for only for the greatest enemies of their power. They thought that there's nothing worse than being nailed naked to a cross and suffocating slowly. So Jesus knew what it would take, he knew what it was going to cost him to obey the one who sent him. And so he wrestled with the prospect of losing his life with the prospect of losing, even more importantly, the love of his Father, of experiencing God's wrath on the cross in place of sinful humanity. Friends, we can never comprehend what Jesus felt in the garden. We can never comprehend that when, in that moment when he is praying, not my will, but your will be done, not my human will, perfect human will, but not my human will to be done, but the Father's will to be done. He is submitting His human will to the divine will. And He's doing that knowing that He was going to go through a horrendous experience of the Father removing His presence and removing His love and replacing that with His wrath on sin. The eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing Creator of all that exists king of all creation, embraced death and judgment. Why? Because he considered our interests, our concerns, as more important than his own. The selfless servant that was sent by God to help us, to save us, he did it for us. The same hymn says, "'Tis mystery all, the immortal dies." Who can explore his strange design? In vain the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine. Tis mercy all. Let earth adore. Let angel minds inquire no more. And then the refrain, Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. This is the essence of the gospel. This is the essence of who Jesus is. This is the essence of what he came to do. The eternal God saying, I will serve you. I will die for you. I will be a sense selfless servant in your life. He came to serve, Jesus said, and not to be served. Even though he's worthy of all creation, worship in him and For all eternity this is who he is by right but he gave up those rights emptied himself so he can serve us he loves us and he sacrificed himself for us that's the supreme example that we are to follow and it's transmitted through other people we see Timothy, we see Epaphroditus, we see Paul, we see other people in our lives, and we say, I'm going to follow them because they're following Christ, because through them, this great example of Christ is being shown to me, it's modeled to me. I can see it. I can see it how it plays out in life. And so we are to pursue becoming an example for others. This is my last point, and I want to be very clear that I want this to be a challenge. I want this to be something that moves you and pushes you and convicts you, perhaps. That because of the supreme example of Christ and because of all the other human examples in our lives, we ought to be examples for others. It's Christ's example that shapes our lives. And there are many people who say, well, we just need to do what Jesus does. But how can you do that? If we only see Christ as a model, as an idea... As a pattern, and all that we have is just to imitate him, it will crush us. Nobody can do that. Epaphroditus, Timothy, Paul, none of them did it perfectly. None of us can do it perfectly. And so if the if I'm only leaving you with a challenge, be like Jesus, <laughs> what are you gonna do? You're probably gonna walk away discouraged, in despair, because if that's the standard, how can I ever reach it? But the beauty of the gospel is that even though Scripture tells us to imitate Christ. It is right to say, be like Jesus, but it also gives us power to do it. When you come to Christ, and please, if you're a believer, think back on your spiritual history. And if you're not a believer, hear me talk about it as an offer to you, as as an exhortation to you to become a believer, because this is how it happens. When we begin to follow Jesus, when we are impressed with Him, when our hearts are captured by Him, and we start following Him, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives. He gives us a new nature, a new heart. and we, I talk about it all the time because that's a key point of understanding the gospel. We're not doing it by ourselves. It's not just me responding by faith to Christ, but He gives me a nature that can respond in faith. And so when the Holy Spirit comes into your life and He changes you, what Scripture describes as being born again, it's a new birth, you become different, you become new. And from that point on, the Holy Spirit works in us and among us to make us more and more like Jesus. So when, when there's a command to follow Jesus, to imitate Him, to be like Him, it's underwritten by the guarantee of God that the Holy Spirit will make you so that He will gradually change you, that you will become like Jesus, that those traits of Jesus, that humility, that selflessness, that mission that He's on, all of those things will grow in you and eventually, eventually they will completely encompass you in glory. So the promise is that yes, follow Jesus, but follow Him in the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is how it works. The more We understand what Jesus has done for us. The more His love, through the work of the Holy Spirit, who pours that love into our hearts, the more His love takes hold of our hearts, the more we become like Him. We become what captures us. We become, in other words, we become what we behold. So the more Jesus becomes big in your life, He controls your thoughts, because you can't not think about his beauty. He controls your heart because your affections are so tied to him now. The more the Holy Spirit reminds you of what he said and what he did for you, the more we become like Jesus. The Heidelberg Catechism, the old Dutch Catechism, puts it this way. This is the first question of the Catechism. This is where they started, okay? What is your only comfort in life and in death? That's the question. What is your only comfort in life and in death? And listen to the answer. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And then they they give us points from Scripture to remind us of what he has done for us, Our, our faithful Savior, Jesus, what he did for us. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. He has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to Him, Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Do you see the progression What am I? Well, I belong to Christ. I live for Him. This is who I am. I'm a servant of Christ. You start there. But then you say, but how? Why? Because He is my servant. Because He has selflessly come to help me. Because He paid for my sins with His blood. Because He freed me from the tyranny of the devil. Because moment by moment, He's watching over me so that not even a hair on my head is in question. Nothing accidental in my life. And as he works in my life, the Holy Spirit assures me that he will complete this work, that I will be saved, that I will be with God forever. And that is why this is what makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's the pattern. The more I myself see Jesus as a selfless servant Sent to help and save me, the more I become a selfless servant sent to help others. So give yourself to the one who gave himself for you. Give yourself to the one who said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. And lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Or as Augustine put it. Every other burden oppresses you and feels heavy. But Christ's burden lifts you up. Any other burden is a crushing weight. But Christ's burden has wings. This is how we can follow Christ's example and become an example to others. And this is my challenge, and I have nothing else to say but to challenge you to become an example for others as you follow the example of Christ. The choice is laid out for us in verses 20 and 21. Paul says of Timothy, For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So, which category do you fall in? Are you in the Timothy category, ascent, selfless servant, whom Paul gives it as an example to the Philippians? Or are you in the category of all those who seek their own interests? Should others honor and imitate you? Do you think of yourself as an example? Can you say with Paul, with this humble audacity, be imitators of me as I am of Christ? It's not arrogant to say that if I am following the example of a selfless servant Jesus who was sent to help and save me. If that is my model and if that is my power, I can be an example for others. Imperfect, yes. Flawed, yes but I can be an example for others in the power of the Holy Spirit. The purpose of Chatham is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. This is what we say we're about. To make disciples means to become disciple makers. It means to become role models. It means to become leaders. Examples of following Christ to others. Are you committed to that? And if you're not a Christian, and I'll close with this, if you're not a Christian this morning, I want to ask you to look at Christ. Look at what he has done for you. Look at his selfless service for you, his sacrificial death for you. Look at what he's offering to you. He's offering a new life by grace. And I pray that you would embrace his call and you would become his follower today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. And I pray for all of us believers and not believers yet, let us see Jesus as the sent, selfless servant, the supreme example of humility. And as we see him, as we relate to what he has done to ourselves, I pray that we would be transformed and moved to imitate him and to become an example to others. And all of that by your grace, in the power of your Holy Spirit, not for our glory, but for your glory. We pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.